When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It is Wednesday, September 8th. Today, I am joined by Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Darius, welcome back to Daily Briefing. How are you doing? I'm feeling fantastic, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We had a pre-interview today where we were just going at it, talking macro. It lasted you know, probably 35 minutes, and I cannot wait to uh, show the people at home what's, what's on your radar. Uh, Darius, I want to start off by, by noting that a lot of bearish uh, research reports have been coming out of the big banks, whether it's Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, or uh, Goldman Sachs. And they are noting, I'd say, three risks. The first risk is the Delta virus. Second risk is slowing economic growth or, or you know, the peaking of economic growth. And the third is uh, balance sheet tapering by global central banks, most notably the Federal Reserve. You, uh, reading your uh, report from 42 Macro, it seems like you're not joining in this chorus of uh, being bearish. You still see a lot of upside in the equity market in being risk on. Tell us why. Yeah, so I mean, I'll tell you why we're bullish. Uh, let me start with where we where you started, which is where the banks. So number one, Delta. Um, if you look at East Asia, some of the survey data coming out of Korea, that's likely peaked and, and, and we're on the other side of the, the peak economic impact of Delta. Uh, number two, uh, why does Wall Street ever get bearish? It's valuation and it's their surveys. Um, I have no comment on, on the surveys, but valuation is not a catalyst over the near to medium term. And then lastly, I forget what the other thing was. But, oh, tapering? Uh, tapering. Oh, taper, oh, yeah, tapering. Um, yeah, no, we don't we don't expect the Fed to commence actual tapering. And I, I feel like I have to underline or all caps actual every time I say it or write it in a report. It's like we can talk about tapering for six months and all you if you're bearish because of that. You're just going to watch the stock market grind higher and they actually do something. And there, we are, it's been our view, increasingly been our view, that uh, the Fed's unlikely to commence actual tapering until December. Yeah, I was reading a report in the Financial Times today, and it said, uh, you know, Fed, uh, 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 Fed member uh, Bullard reached out to the Financial Times to talk about why we need to taper. And it's so easy to get something mixed up with one member reached out to the media and talked about it with actual tapering itself. So uh, tell, to walk uh, us through the, the, the timeline for tapering. Um, and then how do you think it will have an impact on risk assets? We were talking earlier, you know, I said, do you think it will impact cyclicals more than, than tech? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let me, well, let me walk you through the timeline for tapering. And, and if you allow me to unpack this, part of the reason we have this view that it's gonna be December and increasingly likely going to be December um, is really just a function of the lack of substantial further progress in the labor market. Um, you know, so there's a few, there's quite a few data points that we're tracking on a month-to-month -month basis that are separate and apart from the headline figures that everyone observes. And you know, if you allow me to sort of kind of go through them, um, when you look at the employment-to-population ratio, uh, that ticked up 10 basis points to 58.5 in August, but that's still down 260 basis points from where it peaked in February of last year. Number two, you look at the labor force participation rate. For prime working age adults, that's unchanged at 81.8% in August. That's still down 120 basis points from last February. 
Um, you look at the sort of the total number of people who are out of work as a function of the pandemic. You got an additional 2.7 million people unemployed through August. Uh, the labor force, the size of the labor force has declined minus 5.6 million since uh, since um, it, it peaked last year. So you had about 8.3 million people who were still like physically out of work or, or out of the labor force altogether as a function of the pandemic. And then when you talk about um, the Fed sort of, you know, revised dual mandate, specifically the maximum and inclusive uh, sort of portion of that, you know, you, you're seeing some real interesting dynamics that might actually delay the delayed tapering. I um, mean, so you look at something like the, the, the white unemployment rate in August ticked down by 30 basis points to 4.5%. I mean, if you're white, this is a very tight labor market. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But then you look at the Hispanic uh, unemployment rate that ticked down as well, but it's still elevated at 6.4%. But then you look at the black unemployment rate, my folks, you know, we're at uh, plus 60 basis points in August, up to 8.8%. So that's still up 360 basis points from where it peaked in August of 2019. So you're starting to see some incremental bifurcation in the labor market that is sort of moving the Fed actually further away from their dual mandate. So to me, I think the real discussion is, what in the hell is Bullard smoking? I mean, is he auditioning to become the next uh, head of the ECB? Is he trying to channel this inner triche and tight monetary policy right into a slowdown? I mean, it, that's that's what it sounds like. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I, um, you mentioned uh, the different unemployment rates, uh, but between different cohorts. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, historically, the Federal Reserve only looked at the unemployment rate for the aggregate of all people. Now, the fact that there's a discrepancy and that one cohort or, or other cohorts are lagging, they view that as a problem, and that you know that that is factored into the central bank. The central bank response function. So it would be likely to slow them down in their tapering, right? Yeah, no, look, I said this last November, man, the most bullish thing for asset markets is the Fed trying to fix racism with monetary policy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, they're not going to succeed, obviously, but they're going to try and look, look where we are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you talked about uh, Bullard and you talked about uh, him being too soon to taper. I have a theory I want to run, run by you, Darius, which is that uh, Bullard, he may... He probably believes what he says. He's not, uh, you know, making a misstatement about his own beliefs. He's the economist. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah, oh, for sure. But but he is serving the purposes of the Federal Reserve in that uh, the the people who go out and talk to the media they sound really hawkish and they you know say oh well you know th this is ridiculous we have to taper and that calms the bond market down because it uh, gives the appearance that the Federal Reserve still cares about you know preserving the, the purchasing power of the dollar and that. They are. You know, I, I don't want to get to get too extreme, but you know, I think that, that the people who really have their hand on, on the on the throttle, they have made it clear that they care about the labor market uh, and that mandate over the uh, inflation mandate. So, what do you think about my theory that that um, he's Bullard and the other hawks serve a role of calming the bond market down? Because if the bond market were to truly grapple, you know, and look into the heart of of the Federal Reserve, they would see, hey, probably not. You know, good to own a 30-year Treasury at 1.9% when the Federal Reserve is okay with inflation running super hot. Yeah, and no, I do believe that you know, particularly the non-voters in any given year, those that are, especially those that are about to sort of join the voting um, board uh, as Bullard and I believe Bostic are next year. Um, you know, they I tend to be the sort of mouthpieces of dissent, and it's sort of part of it. I think is them gathering market intelligence, but it's also part of it, it's like yeah, to your point, they're trying to sort of put. You know, bumpers around this sort of it's trying to narrow the range of probable outcomes for both asset markets and the economy. So, you know, I commend him for doing what he's sort of probably been tasked to do. I just don't think it's as it's as urgent as they're sort of implying. 
I mean, I guess at the top of the CPI chart, you're like, oh my God, inflation, inflation, inflation. But nobody's looking at the top of the CPI chart and looking down and said, how did we get here? Well, we got here with record demands you know, that's been fueled by one-time stimulus and you know, sort of one partial one-time reopening. They're not going to repeat those two, two dynamics you know, every month going forward. So inflation is obviously very, very much transitory, if only because the, the base effects will get more difficult and you're going to lose those two meaningful uh, sort of drivers of demand. Darius, I want to ask you a question, which is your, the models that you have at 42 Macro Two months ago, they were uh, showing a rising deflationary risk. Uh, you know, it wasn't the dominant uh, probability, but it was a, a high probability relative to now. Now, in your report today, it seems like Goldilocks is the dominant regime. So my question for you is, what has changed? What was signaling a deflationary uh, uh, signal uh, 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 you know, a month and a half ago, two months ago, that now is giving you the green light? Yeah, that's an uh, outstanding question. So. Uh, I'll preface this by saying we've always thought that we're going to survive this sort of period between the transition from reflation to the actual deflation that we expect to commence sometime, you know, November, December of this year with Goldilocks. We thought Goldilocks would really sort of dominate that path. And part of the reason for that is that the economy in both growth and inflation terms, if you think about the delta, the rate of change of growth and inflation, it's not slowing. Neither of those factors are slowing fast enough to perpetuate a negative market outcome. And so what I mean by that, that means the onus is shifting from economic signals to policy and positioning signals in terms of uh, sort of driving inter and intra asset class dispersion. And so if that's the, if that's the situation, well, let's have a talk about what policies and what positioning are. Um, in terms of like, you know, with policy, it's like, we're gonna get, we're, we're already in the middle of a, a net liquidity tsunami. We, we've been really enjoying one all year, a bath really. Um, you look at, you know, sort of you, so in terms of how we calculate net liquidity, because there's obviously a million different ways of calculating it, but we look at the change in the Fed's balance sheet minus the change in the Treasury's uh, general, uh, Treasury general account, uh, the Treasury, the cash balance of the Treasury. And that figure is down, you know, 2.3, that figure is up, like the net liquidity that's been pumped into asset markets is up 2.3 trillion year to date. Um, it's up 860 billion since the end of June alone. And so that dynamic, that net liquidity dynamic is, is here to stay, at least over the next kind of, let's call it two months. And Darius, correct me if I'm wrong. So in, in that equation, the addition the, uh, to the, the net change in the Fed's balance sheet minus the change in the, in the Treasury general account, the TGA, yeah. hasn't the change in the TGA been negative? So minus a negative and you get a positive. With, with, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a math guy too, bud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Negative one times negative one. That's probably yeah. the, the limits of, of my knowledge. Uh, you go a lot further, and actually, let, let's put your uh, math skills on display. If we could put this chart up right now, I mean, very lucky that people at Real Vision get to, to, to watch this and really see into your research. Um, the dots are different ETFs, so ARKK is the ARK growth ETF. Uh, let's see, XLE is the energy, XLU is utilities, uh, GLD is a, a ETF that owns physical gold, and they're sort of all over the map here, uh, mapped on a y-axis and a, an x-axis. Darius, can you explain what the x-axis and y-axis is? You know, without getting too much, you get, you know, get into the weeds, but don't get lost into the weeds. Just give, give us the, the broad picture of what they mean. Yeah, no, so I, I, I get accused once a day of being too verbose and jargony. So my post-Labor Day uh, resolution is to be <laughs> simplify the, simplify the context, complex a bit more. So um, the key takeaway from this chart is that when you're up to the top left, it usually means that investors are overpaying for protection in the options market. Therefore, Mark, the, the, the dealer hedging activity that takes place from a delta hedging perspective tends to get unwound and perpetuate moves higher in asset markets. 
And so that's kind of where we've been all summers, which is why it's one of the many indicators that we're tracking at 42 Macro that suggests that investor investor consensus positioning by positioning across the buy side is not particularly bearish. I mean, there's a myriad of other things that we're looking at. You know, we have a, a, a feature called total confirming asset market VAMs or VAMs are short for volatility just on minimum signals. That's in the 72nd percentile this morning. You typically want to raise red flags if you're either in a Goldilocks or reflation regime, and that's in the 90, 90, 95th, 99th percentile, because that means that everyone's you kind of, you know, sort of max long risk in that in that juncture. Um, the last thing we have, we call it our cross-asset correction risk indicator. That's CACRI for short, and that's at 40%. And, and that 40%, typically that number, that, that time series is typically in the low 20s, high teens, right before meaningful correction in asset market. So we have some ways to go in terms of investors really putting on risk. And if they don't put on risk, then guess what? You know, it's likely that outside of, you know, your, you know, your three to 5% corrections, the market's just going to grind higher every day up until the time where the net liquidity provision really starts to get hairy later this year. Yeah. So uh, a lot of that uh, went, went over my head, but uh, let's just let's keep that uh, chart on. And the bottom uh, left quad is really sort of the, the quad of uh, demise for assets. That's when a lot of people are invested they already own the asset, so there's not uh, a ton of additional liquidity that can buy it. And mm -hmm. also, uh, put volatility is high or put volatility is low. Well, that's when they take off their hedges. The bottom left, the bottom left, you know, part of this chart here is is you have a low level of realized volatility as denoted by the x-axis, and you have a negative implied volatility risk premium. And so that means people are they're unwilling to pay for protection, even though the assets themselves haven't even corrected. And so that to me is like a really negative set. That is a really negative setup. That's precisely what we saw uh, in the second week of February last year. Like we had grinded through this wall of worry from November through the mid-February, uh, from November 2019, all the way through uh, February of this year. And I would suspect that that's probably what we're headed for, you know, later this year. Maybe a lot of those dots that we're having this conversation, you know, two months from now, two and a half months from now, have really gravitated towards the bottom left. And that to me is a real negative signal because it will likely line up with a lot of other you know, sort of confirming, uh, confirming evidence that investors have really kind of taken off their hedges. But we're not there yet, right? No, we're not there. Yeah, because there, as in the bottom left uh, quad, there's there are no none of the dots there. All right. If, if yeah, your viewers learn one thing from me, from terms of looking at this particular chart, is that markets don't crash when everybody's position form. They crash when they take when investors are forced to take off their hedges, either by a low level of realized volatility, they get squeezed out of squeezed out of shorts, or they they just Turn fundamentally bullish. Either or is this is that's you know that's the key takeaway. Mm. Uh, Darius, uh, thank you for that. I think that just to give my interpretation of it. So implied volatility is what the the market is paying for whether yeah. it will move a lot, and then realizes whether it actually happens. So when implied volatility is higher than realized volatility, uh, they are they're the market's buying a lot of insurance, and when people buy insurance. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to be left naked when the ties goes out, right? Yeah. So the, the 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 technical linkage is that the dealers who sell the insurance have to then go delta hedge the underlying exposure in the market, you know, so that they're you know not you know taking on basis risk. And to the extent that that the the thing that the insurance is being protected against doesn't occur, then they have to cover those hedges. So that's that's why this analysis is helpful. You know, again, there's not always a signal, but sometimes there is a signal. And, and when you look at this chart in aggregate, you can pretty much clearly see. That the market has been and continues to climb a wall of worry throughout this sort of Goldilocks regime. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, uh, Darius, we have a lot of questions from the audience that are asking now, both on realvision.com and on YouTube. But we're actually going to ask, we're going to uh, take questions first from the Real Vision Exchange. Darius, you posted a great uh, series of charts on the Real Vision Exchange. I believe the link to it is in the description of this video. And uh, you said po post your questions. And some Real Vision members, some members of the Hive Mind, they took you up and they have some questions for you. Um, so uh, uh, Peter wants to know, what's it going to take for the reflation trade to come back? Are industrial metals signaling something that the rest of the market isn't picking up on? Uh, probably not. Um, obviously, you know, you're, you're, so the thing about commodities and think about any, any particular commodity or any particular stock or any particular credit is that they can and will move on their own fundamentals. When you're talking about macro, it's about categories of stocks, categories of credits, categories of, of commodities, all moving in unison or all having, you know, some sort of, you know, sort of fractalized dispersion that makes sense from a, from an economic perspective. And so when you talk about like, what will it take for reflation to come back? I think reflation in the economy. And, and the reality is we've sort of lost those impulses. Part of the reason, one of the reasons we lost, two of the reasons we lost impulses, one, we can't just keep reopening indefinitely. And two, we lost a lot of fiscal stimulus. So I do believe the September data are likely to bounce relative to August because August is the peak month of Delta. But the reality is even if the data bounce in September, that's not the start of a new trend. We are now trending lower in growth and in, in, in growth terms. And we expect inflation to show a, a trending deceleration as well uh, by the time you get into September, October. So um, the reality is if you lack those impulses, and, and the reason I, I sort of harp on this is because when you back test, you know, we have this thing called our grid asset market back test where we back test everything that ticks in macro that's relevant through the lens of our grid process. And when you look at those back tests and you study them carefully, you tend to only have meaningful increases in bond yields or meaningful declines in bond prices when, you, when the economy is in reflation, i.e. both growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. And that's just unlikely to occur on a trending basis throughout the second half of this year and into the early part of next year. So um, could you get it back up in bond yields? I certainly think that's likely. And part of the reason I think that's likely is when you get into you know Q4, the later part of Q4, let's start, let's say starting in mid-November, certainly by December, you're going to have two things that will be very unfavorable from a technical perspective for the bond market. Now, let's, let's, let's put the, shifting from the, you know, the, what's happening in the economy to what's happening technically. And you're going to have the Fed pull back on the amount of stimulus that it's buying. And you're also going to have the Treasury meaningfully, I mean, I mean, meaningfully accelerate the amount of uh, uh, Treasury issuance. And so and, and the reason that's, that's, a obvious, that's an obvious negative technical for the bond market. And, and, and so the reason for that being is because the treasury market sits at the very top of the global capital structure. Like if you think about this in like schoolyard terms, like the treasury is, is was, you know, it's, it's like, you know, 12 year old Darius is 300 pounds and everybody else is 80 pounds, right? You know, <laughs> like that, that, is, that is the treasury market. And so it always gets its money and it's gonna get its money from somewhere and it's always gonna collect. So the, you have three options. You and I can sell assets from our portfolios to capitalize them. Um, the, Foreign, uh, foreign central banks, the foreign official reserve sector can capitalize them or the Fed can capitalize them. Well, we know the foreign reserve sector has, has not capitalized them in recent years that peaked in 2014. 
they refuse to recycle dollars. Um, we do, we're, we know the Fed is likely to be buying you know less bonds than they are currently in that time period as well. So that means you and I are going to be forced to capitalize them, capitalize the bully. The bully is going to grab us by the ankles and start shaking us and say, "Hey, I need hundreds of billions of dollars from you, and I haven't asked, I haven't come to collect in a while." And that to me is a, a negative technical that you know could easily see a 10, 15, 20 basis point back up at Bonios, if not if not a 20 to 30 basis point back up. But this concept of going from 130 to two, to me, still seems somewhat preposterous in the context of lacking all those economic fundamentals that I highlighted earlier. Yeah, it's, it's such a brilliant uh, analogy you say, Darius. So the, the Treasury is the bully in middle school who's going around the lunchroom and shaking people, shaking fellow classmates to get some change, hoping the change will fall out of the pockets. Mm-hmm. And the Federal Reserve is the rich kid who says, hey, Mr. Treasury, the t- Treasury bully, don't worry about it. I'll pay you off. I'll give you the thing. Problem is, if the rich kid stops paying less and less and less, yes. then the bully is going to do a lot of shaking. And you know, some of those kids might not have any much change left to give. Therefore, oh. bonds could go up. So that's the technical thing. But you're, you think that the a bond market route, uh, some weakness in bonds, wouldn't be exacerbated because why? Well, it would, be, it would only be exacerbated if the economy were about to show trending acceleration in economic growth and trending acceleration in inflation. It's highly unlikely from a probability perspective that that is occurring you know, mid to late Q4 of this year. If anything, it'll be extremely obvious that both growth and inflation are trending lower at that point in time. Right. Two more questions from the uh, Real Vision Exchange. Uh, Fred P. wants to know about Darius's views on gold in the coming three months. And Jabana wants to know, uh, do you have any thoughts on uranium? Yeah, gold is in this kind of weird opera place, right? Because everything I just said means that you could see it back up in, in the long end of, of the tips curve. The tips are uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. That's the real interest rate, you know, deflated by market-based expectations for inflation. And so you could see it back up in, in the 10-year tip shield in that time frame where the bully comes to collect. And between now and then, you could easily see, you know, strength in the U.S. dollar. Um, and so, like, I, I just don't see how gold really breaks out of this awkward consolidation phase in any one meaningful way. If anything, I think the risk is probably skewed to the downside, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to go down. I, 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 and my model's neutral on gold from a quantitative perspective in terms of our volatility adjusted momentum signal, and I'm fundamentally neutral on gold as well. And this is another thing. You don't have to have a view on everything ticking at all times. If you have a high conviction view, then express that in your portfolio. My high conviction view is in the process. So the portfolio construction reflects my high conviction in the process, not in any one of those individual securities. Absolutely. And, and my uh, you know, long-term view on gold, just based on, on my research, is quite bullish. But I speak to a lot of smart people and smart analysts, smart investors, who forecast that the next you know, three to six months for gold could continue to be choppy. So you got to separate the long-term view from the short-term view. You're spot on, man. So you just hit the nail on the head in terms of what I, I, you know, have these conversations with, you know, with our subscribers and our clients all the time. It's like we can talk about the destination, but the destination is not how you make or save money. The sequence is how you make or save money. The sequence is where your good and bad decisions occur, or that you compound good decisions or compound negative decisions, and that's what risk management is about. Investing is about telling the story about some future state. Risk management is about not losing money along the way to getting to that future state. And that's what we really focus on here at 42 Macro. Yeah, Darius, uh, we, we took a lot of questions from the exchange. The Real Vision Exchange has been around for uh, um, you know 
almost a year now, and a lot of our members get a lot of value to it. We recently uh, took it up a notch in terms of the tech. We, we launched it on Real Vision 2.0, so it really is a cutting-edge uh, platform. And uh, Rao Pal, Real Vision CEO, uh, wanted to let some members just give an update on, on about, about the new exchange. So let's take a look at Rao's video that came out today on Real Vision. I think you know by now, I'm passionate about community. I think it's the future of Real Vision, future of business models overall. The community of Real Vision has grown over the years to something truly spectacular, something I call the hive mind. You know, where you get supplied with information from us and you've become smarter than the individuals on the platform. I mean, we've actually proven it by stuff like the Real Vision bot, which surveys you guys and you guys are smarter and are outperforming both the markets and most of our guests. But over the last year, we built out something called The Exchange, which is our kind of social media forum where you can start sharing ideas, videos, research notes, ask the community questions. And the first iteration of that was pretty clunky. And it wasn't perfect. I mean, everybody complained if you went back, it went all the way back to the beginning of the feed and the feed was chronological and wasn't sorted by, you know, what was the most engaging content. But we've changed all of that. And we've spent a long time working with the right partner to build out a much better exchange because I care massively about the hive mind. I think the future of Real Vision lies in this and that all of our worlds will collapse within the community idea. So now it's nicely organized. It's much cleaner. You can um, bookmark stuff so you can store some interesting information for later. You can engage with people. There's direct messaging. There's even group messaging. So you can start talking to groups of people yourselves, forming your own networks. And here is where you can post research ideas or ask questions and get proper feedback from people. Now, a lot of you haven't used this yet, but thousands of people are. And I'd really love you to start thinking more and more about how you can use the exchange because the value of Real Vision is not just the content we make, it's you. You guys are the experts on something. And that's the key thing. When you have lots of experts on something applying their minds to, let's say, finance, markets, crypto, then we've got something truly special. So go in there and enjoy it. If you want to check out the uh, new and improved version of the exchange, please click in the link for the description below where you can see uh, all the charts that Darius posted for this exact episode that we talk about in this episode. Uh, so thank you, Darius, um, for posting them. And thank you to the Real Vision Exchange members for posting your questions. Darius, before we get to the other questions on, on YouTube and realvision.com, of which there are many, I want to quickly um, put up a chart uh, of your sort of uh, momentum signal for the NASDAQ, uh, QQQ, the NASDAQ 100. And the, as you can see in the, the, the green for the audience, uh, that is a bullish signal. Uh, and red is a bearish. And Darius, a lot of the charts that you posted on the exchange, uh, whether it's for you know uh, um, low volatility or you know low beta uh, communication services technology, is pretty much, you're bullish on so many things. So uh, you talked about why you're bullish. My question for you is, what are you bearish on? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, you don't want to be too bearish on too many things if you have the fundamental view of Goldilocks, right? Like that's the that, that's the starting point. But I do believe that there are pockets of risk out there um, that, or you know, one has been priced in, and we've been you know ac ac accurate on the you know right right side of it, and that's China, right? You go back to you know the early part of this year when it became very clear 
uh, to me at least, that the credit cycle was peaking and rolling over. And we've seen a meaningful sort of decline in that in that indicator. And the reason I highlight that indicator first is because that tends to be the most the, the number one thing a lot of investors focus on when they focus on, on China risk. And so you look at something like the credit impulse that peaked around 32 percent in November of 2020. That's all that's come down pretty sharply all year. It's all, all, you know, just shy of 25 percent now. And, and, and the reason I call that out is because I haven't seen anything from the PBOC or from the pilot world that suggests that, that we're going to see a meaningful sort of cessation of that of that decline. And, and, and you know, so historically, you've seen pretty, pretty sharp declines in something like three months shy bore. And the reason I look at three months shy bore Sorry, what is that? Three months what? Shibor is uh, interbank lending rates in China. Oh, okay. Um, so the reason I look at that is because you know most people don't realize this, but you know four fifths of private non-financial sector credit is on bank balance sheet in China. Like it's sitting on the bank balance sheet. The banks are the, the primary source of credit intermediation, intermediation on the mainland. Whereas you know you look at something like the U.S., less than fifty percent is on bank balance sheet. We have hedge funds, mutual funds, all these other entities, non-bank sector creating creating credit. And so you look at something like Shibor, you're going to get a general sense of the, you know, the ultimate impact of monetary policy. And, you know, you can sort of see it in China in a way that you can't see in many other economies. And Shibor is barely budged. It's only down 10 basis points in the last two months since the end of June. And so it's telling you that, hey, look, the PBOC's policy setting has not materially eased yet, you know, because you're not seeing it in the interbank lending rates yet. And so that means that the credit impulse in China is unlikely to bottom anytime soon. Because you typically see a sharp decline in Shibor, you know, prior to a, a bottoming and the reinflection higher in, in China's credit impulse. So, um, you know, in terms of like looking at something like the KBA, the China ETF, or the uh, the FXI, or something like that, those things are have been bearish. You know, or everything China ADR has been bearish, but those things, the KBA at the bare minimum, has popped back into neutral. I don't trust that neutral signal at all. If anything, it's telling me that there's potentially more risk aversion uh, to the downside. So. Um, you know, I'm not a raging China bear. I'm not a raging bear on anything in Goldilocks, but I certainly think uh, China is an area of focus. And the, you, we haven't even talked about the regulatory risk, right? And this, and I'll say that to say this: I think China is getting this pandemic right in a way that most Western societies are unable to. Because I think a lot of what they're done, especially with this Didi thing recently, in terms of like trying to effectively nationalize Didi, I think they're realizing that the pandemic is an endemic one. And two, if the pandemic is an endemic, we're not going back to 2019 levels of, of you know, service sector demand and consumption. And if we don't do that, then we're probably not going to go back to 2019 levels of employment. And I think they're trying to get out in front of that transition of this just sort of real societal economic transition of saying, hey, look, man, let's, you know, people are going to be really pissed if things don't get back to normal. And they're probably not going back to normal. So let's take some regulatory steps to make sure that there's more harmony and balance in society, that profits are being more evenly distributed throughout society. So I think they're taking a proactive and what ultimately might be the you know world beating you know measures. But right now it's just not good for asset markets, right? You have people you know super long China in terms of all the growth that we saw there, and now they got to get out of those positions. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Darius, we got a question from Elko who really hones in this point. Says, Darius, do you think Evergrande or other China credit risk 
will affect U.S. markets, Evergrande being a very large property developer in China. And I believe their bonds have traded from something like 90 cents on the dollar a few months ago to now something like 20 cents on the dollar. So that's sort of flashing red. No, no, definitely not. I mean, just by definition, right? Like you, you, you say, one, China has a closed capital account. So almost nothing they do there has a real impact on from a, from a, from a systemic risk perspective, aside from just a major growth slowdown. And they're not going to have a major growth slowdown because Evergrande defaults or a series of other sort of um, you know high risk borrowers default in China. There's no tolerance and there's no appetite. And I learned this from Steve Roach probably 12 years ago. Um, you know, the, the, the good, good, good friend, good mentor, Steve Roach, uh, 12 years ago, there's absolutely no tolerance in China for what happened, in, what we saw in August and September 2000, uh, 2008, in terms of like allowing, you know, real systemic risk emanating from the financial sector. They're not going to allow that to happen. They're, they have plenty of tools and, and a war chest that's north of $3 trillion to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so to answer the question, no, I don't think Evergrande's going to create a catalyst of systemic risk. If anything, it's just continue, It's a continuation of what China's really trying to do, which is bring the excesses out of society or out of the financial sector so that they don't have to ever worry about something like Lehman. But they're also trying to do at the top of the you know, capital structure now. It's like, look, you guys have gotten rich with all this innovation. And, and Jim Bianco, excellent investor, outstanding investor, I was on Real Vision Daily Briefing on Friday and he was saying, hey, look, man, like, they're going to scare all of the innovators out of China and in the Silicon Valley. And I don't disagree with that statement. But the reality is, is, you know, are they going to, uh, you know, if, the, if if we're storming the Capitol and marching in every street and burning stuff in every street here in America, are they going to come to America either? Because that's where we're headed. If we, if we you know, we, everything that China's probably trying to get out in front of in terms of the societal, you know, rebouncing that, that probably needs to take place on the other side of this, the other side of this endemic. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there, uh, Darius. I, when uh, I think that the hallmark of 2008 was a pension plan in Norway bought some BS product from a Wall Street bank in New York, and there you had a, a global contagion of financial risk where uh, largesses in the U.S. spread and infected the world. And you're saying that China does not want that, and uh, I, I think that lot makes a lot of sense to me. But what's interesting, Darius, is that when you said that four-fifths of the credit risk is on the balance sheets of US, of Chinese banks, and it's yeah. not on the U.S. banks, that instantly made me think of 2008, because why is it not on the balance sheet of the U.S. banks? It's because of uh, regulations which pre uh, prevent from all this risk being on the the, the, the balance sheets of, of U.S. banks. They, they did also, I think we learned in September of 2019, and, and again in, in, in March of, of 2020, that the risk didn't go anywhere, or sorry, the risk, the, the risk still is there, they just moved to a different place. That's what Dodd Frank accomplished. Dodd Frank just made it more it's palatable to take risk in the in the non-regulated uh, sort of sectors in finance. So you know this is why you know and in, in my opinion, I think that's part of the reason you know why Jeff Snyder's been so right about like look every time we have these accelerations, we wind up you know kind of slowing and and the trend keep continues lower in terms of you know productive capacity of the economy. And the reason for that is that look, it's hard for an economy to grow. If credit creation is being done in the shadows, right? If the bulk of credit creation is being done by people who inherently don't trust each other, or inherently, or you know, economic agents who desperately need their money back, otherwise they lose their job, you know, it just makes this whole thing a lot less sort of um, robust. Like you know, you, it, it also and it also creates sort of perverse incentives to like be super pro cyclical when things are really good. Here, go 
take an extra loan and start two car washes or or two beauty salons or you know the next eighteen Jamba Juices, whatever you know what happened Jamba Juice. You know, like that's what happens. I believe the stock is when the cycle turns and the credit spreads start to rise and the Fed's balance sheet is contracting. And it's like, no, no, no. Instead of having two Jamba Juices, we need you to sell me to tell those Jamba Juices and give me cash. You know, like it's such a you know, we created this system that's so it, it, it's so um, I'm, I'm lost for word here, but it, it just Cyclical it's not word. efficient. Yeah. It's not efficient. You know, it's yeah. efficient for making money, but it's not efficient for growing an economy and really distributing wealth adequately. Yeah, the demand to create a Jamba Juice is at its apex when really there are already too many Jamba Juices. Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So, the, 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 demand, the, the, the willingness to finance the 18th Jamba Juice is more than the willingness to finance the first one. Exactly. That, so you know, the first one was cutting edge and the 18th is just like, it's, it's exactly. over. Yeah. Uh, Darius, uh, just two quick events. Um, today, today, the Federal Reserve re- released its beige book. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sense its report on the economy in the U.S. for the month of August. Interestingly, I think the term Delta, as in Delta variant, appeared 32 times. Also, the ECB is scheduled to uh, meet tomorrow and it will announce perhaps its plans of tapers. We saw what, how markets reacted to the Fed's plans tomorrow. Um, we could see how the, the ECB's taper will, will impact asset markets. Today, actually, European equities were down, I believe, over over 1%. Uh, so maybe uh, you know already pricing that in, Darius. I don't have time to ask you about those two things. I want to hear your thoughts, but we don't have time. But I will ask you a thought, a question from Bernardo, from uh, who asks, Darius, what's your favorite kind of sandwich? Oh man, that is a loaded question. <laughs> you don't got, so for the for those of you guys only see me sitting in this chair, I'm, I'm six four, two hundred eighty pounds. So I've obviously like a lot of different types of sandwiches. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, being put on the spot, I'm gonna have to just go uh, bow out and say peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> Ooh, oh, you can't go wrong with that. <laughs> no, you can't. Absolutely not. That's great. Well, Darius of 42 Macro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you everyone to watching. If you want to see all of Darius's charts, please click on the exchange link below. Also, stay tuned for uh, tomorrow's daily briefing, which will be Tony Greer, hosted by Maggie Lake. Uh, awesome. Thank you. One, one quick thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 new exchange is awesome. Like you guys did a really good job with that, man. Like it was super easy to post, super easy to interact with people. Like it's 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 it's, it's awesome. Everybody check that out for sure. Yeah, th- thank you. And I think a lot of people they're commenting on YouTube or they're commenting on the video in realvision.com. They're sort of searching for a they're yearning for a sense of community. They have their financial ideas. They want to share it with other people. They want to see what other people are saying. I think now, um, you know, really the. Everything is there on the Real Vision Exchange. So I thank you, Darius, for saying that. And uh, oh, pleasure, watch out. All right. So uh, thank you, everyone, and uh, have a good night. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.